Hello, and welcome to Connected by Life. I'm your host, Sean Paul Harrison. This podcast aims to foster thought-provoking discussions on crucial subjects that significantly influence physicians and our clinical stakeholders, especially regarding organ donation and transplantation. Today is part one of two, and we're going to be discussing brain death and how to effectively prepare families whose loved one may have died by brain death. My special guest is Dr. Amy Eisen, who's a neurointensivist, the vice chair of hospital neurology, and also an associate professor at Tulane. You know, Dr. Eisen, before we even begin, actually, I don't even know if you remember this, but it's been it's been a number of years ago when I first met you. I was brand new to LOPA, and I remember I was following someone that was going to be giving a LOPA presentation, and we were going to be following you, and you were giving a brain death presentation to a bunch of residents, and I was kind of sitting in the corner of the room, and I was just amazed at how knowledgeable you were. And one of the things that I've always been very appreciative of is how someone can know something so well, but be able to teach it to someone else and it really be a learned thing. And so I just wanted to say thank you for for what you do. And that's one of the reasons why we have you here. Um, You know, we are gonna be talking about, primarily about brain death. And this first episode, we're gonna be talking about having a conversation in preparation for that family that may be experiencing a loss of their loved one with brain death. And so, you know, it's such an important topic because there's so very few people that die uh, by neurological death, and so it's not the norm. So I just wanted to kind of have a conversation with you on what that conversation's like and, and how to prepare a family that's experiencing that. You're right. Death by neurologic criteria is much less common than people who have cardiac death. And in the eyes of the law, they're equivalent, um, but they're certainly not emotionally equivalent. So it's important to talk to families about what to expect and what it means um, overall. I'm sure there is an, a lot of different layers that goes into this, even having this conversation. You talked about the, the difference between, you know, basically cardiac death and, and brain death. But as far as for the layers in, in understanding it, um, I think that, you know, one of them can be like how that patient even got there. What's the differences with that? For brain death, there are specific ways that people's brain can totally stop. Technically, it happens when the intracranial pressure becomes greater than the perfusion pressure. We call that critical closing pressure, where all the blood vessels in the brain get closed off because the pressure from the external um, external to the blood vessels closes all of the blood vessels in the brain off at the same time, which prevents blood flow to the brain, and then obviously the brain dies from that reason. Things that can do that um, would be trauma, number one, um, also post-cardiac arrest, Strokes of a variety of different types, including subarachnoids, increased um, intracerebral hemorrhage or ischemic strokes. Um, And then also some metabolic encephalopathies, particularly hepatic, can lead to cerebral edema to the point of critical closing pressure. So with all of those differences, how difficult it is for that family to understand, or even even some of the residents that you're teaching, to really understand the differences between those things and to be something that they can, um, I don't know, just just to get to that point of understanding. Yeah, I think there's a um, understanding of the spectrum of mental status, in particular going from alert to stuporous to comatose to brain death, and that is a spectrum um, with brain death being the absolute irreversible cessation of all brain function. 
And so sometimes we have patients who may be deeply comatose and even have lost some brainstem reflexes, um, but have not lost all of brain function. So haven't lost all of their brainstem reflexes, can maybe still overbreathe the vent. And that person's not necessarily dead yet. Um, and it doesn't mean that they won't become. Maybe they will, maybe they won't, but it's difficult to know. So in those situations, that's when I start having conversations with family in particular, is to making sure they understand the severity of neurologic injury causing coma, and subsequently that that person's coma could potentially result in complete irreversible cessation of all brain function. And so I think the conversation for me from the family's perspective starts when I meet the patient who's comatose. Sometimes in rare situations, I may have been able to care for the patient when they were better neurologically. I'm thinking of something like a subarachnoid hemorrhage patient that might have deterioration later in the the course of their disease. But most of the time, we don't know the patients when they're awake. So when I initially meet the family, I do say, this might be a situation that your patient's comatose. I always use the words, your loved one is comatose and on life support. Because I do think that people say, oh, they're just on a ventilator but don't realize that that is the same as a layman's life support. And so I I do use those words fairly frequently that patients are comatose on life support so that they can understand the severity of injury. And then as we start down the path that I suspect the patient's going to be brain dead, I, I bring it up that they may actually lose their life from this condition. And, you know, certainly that can be whether we decide to transition to comfort care or whether the patient is able to uh, progressive brain death or does progressive brain death. So I'll start talking about brainstem reflexes fairly early on, and I'll mention what's present and what's not. So I'll explain my neurologic exam every day. I do that pretty much for all patients, right? So if I shine a light in their eyes and they lose a pupillary response, I start talking about what that means. And then as we approach complete cessation, I say something like, we have very little brain function that I can detect on my exam. I use those words. And then at some point, it's, I cannot detect any brain function on my exam today. That may lead to a variety of different conversations after that. Um, Sometimes it happens where I can't detect brain function on my exam today, but your loved one is so sick that I cannot proceed with brain death because they would die during that testing. Or it could be, I do not detect brain function today on my exam, and we're going to proceed with brain death exam. And when that happens... I start talking about what the brain death exam entails, and I say it's exactly the same thing we do every day. So I'll check for responsiveness, shine a light in their eyes, put a cotton swab on their cornea, um, cold water in their ears. The most challenging part of it emotionally is when we disconnect the ventilator, and we call that the apnea test. So I specifically say we disconnect the tubing, but we do not take the tube out of their throat, and the tube will remain in place Their heart will continue to beat and we'll give them oxygen through the tube, but we'll measure to see if they can breathe. And so with that, it really describes what apnea testing is. Then I'll invite families if they would like to be present for that testing or not be present for that testing. Um, There was a randomized control trial that came out about 10 years ago that looked at if families were present for brain death testing, that they had an improved understanding of what the test involved including that a patient who is brain dead cannot breathe. So I invite them. But I also say grief can be expressed in a variety of different ways. And you can be very emotional during this time, especially if you're watching your loved one not breathe. You're supposed to watch 
for a full observe for a full 10 minutes. So that's a very long time to be standing still watching somebody not breathe, especially if you care deeply about them. So say if you get too emotional for this situation, I just ask that you step out quietly and you're welcome to come back in if you feel like you would like to. But if you feel like it's too emotional, just step out. So two things I'd like to address is really it's communication in two different ways. So one is your communication with the family. Mm -hmm. And what I hear that I find is very important is the detail Mm -hmm. of the discussion that you're having. Because whether it's visualization or whatever the case may be, also when we're talking about the difference between a coma or brain death, you know, because we all hear those stories as well. I know someone that was in a coma, but your communication with this family and being very detailed, also in using very specific words that may Mm -hmm. be difficult for some physicians to use. The other thing that we haven't really talked about is about the communication because you're not the only person that's involved with this family. Mm-hmm. You know, you may ha- mm-hmm. have consulting doctors, you have a nurse, maybe mm-hmm. social worker, palliative care, just depending on how long they've been there. So how important is that to make sure you all are on the same page and moving in the same direction with this family? It's very important. I mean, families who have mixed messages complain about um, medical care across the board, right? It doesn't matter if it's that you're going in for uh, a cast on your arm or if you're there because you're brain dead. It's if you don't have good communication across the board with your medical team, then every the trust breaks down across every possible role. You know, I certainly communicate with the bedside nurse of this is what we're going to do today. I tend to do brain death exams in the afternoon, which all of you LOPA people probably know and don't like. <laughs> but it, for me, allows me to have space to know that all of my other patients are cared for, that I can be ca- more calm and more relaxed in a high-stress situation. And that I can take my time to explain it to everybody. So I'll tell the nurse in the morning, usually, there's no brain function on exam. Um, maybe I have a prerequisite or something else that has not quite yet been met. So, for example, I have the nurse send a urine drug screen if that hasn't been done yet or needs to be repeated for some reason. Or say their temperature is not totally normal. I'll say, can you make sure that the patient is warm today and we'll, I'll come back later this afternoon and reassess. So those kinds of communications with the nurse is important. The respiratory therapist needs to be 100% on board, especially if they've never done it before, because you need to have a functional arterial line. You need to have a pre-apnea test ABG, arterial blood gas, and you need to have them repeat that while the patient is disconnected from the ventilator. And of course, the respiratory therapist is the person who actually physically disconnects the machine and puts in oxygen. The communication also needs to be about what their what is their oxygen level now and what is their requirement. So for example, some people are requiring more PEEP than others, and you might need a PEEP valve to help keep the alveoli open and, ha- and safely do the test. So all the respiratory needs have to be met before you can uh, proceed with apnea testing for sure. So having each part of that lined up, I would love if we just kind of did it as a a team um, at one time in the morning, but it tends to be a little bit more piecemeal because everybody's running around doing other things, especially when we first start our shifts. So I'll tell the nurse what I need from that person. Um, Again, it's usually a urine drug screen or presser requirements or temperature and to make the prerequisites um, met before we proceed with brain death testing. And then from the respiratory therapist, I usually give an approximate time um, and make sure we have 
pre-oxygenation and an ABG before we get started. Well, all of this, really what it seems like is that you're summarizing intentional preparation. You know, with and even Absolutely. when you were talking about like maybe a little bit doesn't like to do it in the afternoon, which actually, you know, is something that is very much appreciated because if you think about it, um, you know, it, it also enables families to be there mm-hmm. as well. Like if you're doing it really early in the morning or late at night, you know, oftentimes, even if it's not someone that's immediate family, someone that needs to be there, or wants to be there, mm-hmm. they can be there. And then the other thing is, too, is that. You know, as far as for you talking about describing, depending on if it's appropriate, whether or not it's for you, the patient or the family, that visualization of doing the test, we know from some of the families that we've supported and, um, you know, their loved one has become a hero, that that is something that has been very beneficial to them, Mm -hmm. is being able to really identify that they know what the test is supposed to result, and it didn't, as far as for life. And so... That is uh, that has been a very big benefit to those families. So right, and then I think another kind of part of family communication that, and you mentioned waiting for people to be there. Um, one thing that comes up is a family who may not want you to do brain death testing, and is not quite ready for transition and comfort. But we have to remember that declaring someone brain dead is not the same as transition and comfort care. And recently, actually, I told a family that if their loved one's heart stopped beating, I would be legally obligated to know that. And I would not continue to care for someone whose heart stopped beating. And this is the same thing for the brain. And so we will proceed with brain death testing. In the state of Louisiana, it does not require consent. Obviously, people are grieving, and we want to make sure anybody who is who can see that person while they're still alive can be there. So I'll give families days to get there if, if that's a realistic goal. But if it's an emotional barrier, I'm usually pretty direct with them, and it's usually received pretty well as far as it's not that I'm I'm not killing them on this day. This is the day that I have discovered that they're dead. It's not anything different than if their heart had stopped beating, and now I know that it's stopped. Do you think that that would be something important for just the medical community across the nation as far as, I guess one of the things whenever you're bringing that up, I'm hearing that if if you're not treating this differently on pronouncing a person dead, you know, like the cardiac death, the mm-hmm. same thing with brain death, it's just the percentages of people dying is differently. If it's mm-hmm. not looked at as something you know, new or special or out of the norm, it's, you know, death is death. I think that, you know, do you think that that's important is the way that it's conveyed to the family? It's the way I convey it to the family, um, whether is the right way. And some people may disagree with what I said before about um, waiting for them to have full consent for brain death testing. It's just not required in our state. And I think ethically, um, you know, there can be a discussion or, or debate about that. But I, I think that when we're in difficult situations, Direct and fair communication is what really matters. So I guess the next phase of this is where we're going to pick up in the next episode is, you know, this whole conversation was about preparing a family before that testing. And I look forward to getting into it with you on, you know, doing that testing, what the results are, and then having that conversation. So thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and your time with us. Thank you. And I hope everyone tunes into the next episode where we talk about having this conversation with families. I appreciate you for listening. And remember, you can register as an organ, eye, and tissue donor anytime at registerme.org.
If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Connected by Life on your favorite podcast app. And always remember, you are a light worker. Keep shining. This is a production of LOPA. The content in this podcast is intended for informational purposes only and not intended to substitute for professional medical advice. To read our full disclaimer, please visit our website. The Connected by Life podcast is hosted by myself, Sean Paul Harrison. Our executive producer is Kirsten Heinz. Our production assistant is Chandra Williams. And we are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Covington, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez.